evidence and answers. Christianity is a historical faith, and there are thousands of archaeological discoveries that confirm the accuracy and authenticity of the Bible. Islam also claims to be a historical faith. The Quran claims to record the history of Muhammad and his teachings. But does archaeology confirm the historical accuracy and authenticity of Islam and the Quran like it does for the Bible? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Jay Smith, will discuss archaeology and the Quran here in part one of a three-part interview. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, Christianity, we know, is a historical faith, and there are thousands of archaeological discoveries that confirm the accuracy and authenticity of the Bible and Jesus Christ. Well, Islam also claims to be a historical faith. The Quran claims to be the accurate record of the history of Muhammad and his teachings. But does archaeology confirm the historical accuracy and authenticity of Islam and the Quran like it does for the Bible? Well, to help us today is Dr. Jay Smith. Jay Smith is a full-time missionary with the Brethren in Christ Mission, working in evangelism and apologetics among Muslims. Jay has a master's degree in Islamic studies from Fuller Theological Seminary and a doctorate at Melbourne School of Theology. He is widely acknowledged as one of the leading Christian authorities on the historicity of early Islam and the Quran and has participated in many debates and lectures. And you can watch his debates there on YouTube. He's got a number of them with top Islamic scholars. So, Jay, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Well, thank you. Thanks, Pat, for having me on. Yes. Now, Jay, just so people have a background, uh, give us a brief overview of the origin and history of Islam, which centers on its founder, Muhammad. Well, Pat, I'm going to give you two answers, because there is there are two different divergent responses to that question. If you were to talk to a Muslim, what, how did the Islam begin and how did the Quran, how was it formed? They will give you what we know as the classical account, the standard account, probably the only one you've ever heard or anybody else has ever heard if you've been brought up in any schools or Bible schools or seminaries. or Certainly this is the only account that they really allow to be taught in our schools. And that starts from the premise that the Quran itself was sent down to a man named Muhammad, who was born in 570, started receiving these revelations while he was living in Mecca in around 610 AD, and continued to do so up until 622 AD when he moved to Medina, and there uh, continued to receive it for another 10 years until he died in 632, the Quran. And he is the one that starts Islam, because in 624, he creates what we know as the Caliphate or the Khilafah, the Islamic State. He then dies in 632, some believe maybe by poisoning, but the Quran had not been written down by that time. It had only been memorized by many people who were his companions. It had been written on bones, stones, pieces of bark, things like that. After he died, Abu Bakr takes over power, and in about a year after Muhammad dies, there's a big battle called the Battle of Yamama. And many of those Muslims that were at that battle, about 70 of them, who died at that battle, had memorized the Quran. So that there was a crisis. They needed to do something. They needed to quickly write it down before it got lost. And that was done. That was given to 
the secretary of Muhammad, a man named Zaid ibn Thabit, who wrote it down, and the Quran was then created at that time, so around 632. He then gives it to Abu Bakr, the caliph at that time. He gives it to Umar, the next caliph, who gives it to his daughter named Hafsa, and she sticks it under her bed, keeps it under her bed. It stays there for about 20 years. 20 years later, Umar takes power. He then is killed. Uthman takes power. He's the third caliph, and around uh, halfway through his reign in 652, there's another battle. This is the battle of Azerbaijan. And they, their Muslims go up to that battle. They meet other Muslims from Syria and from Iraq, and they hear a completely different Quran. And so they get angered by it. They come back to Uthman and say, we need to write the Quran down in one form, in one dialect, so there are not different Qurans like the Christians and the Jews have with different Bibles. So Uthman commissioned Zaid ibn Thabit a second time to write this Quran down using the original one he did uh, he was finished there with Abu Bakr. So that's 652. That the Quran then was sent out to five different cities, Mecca, Medina, Basra, Kufa, and Damascus. And any other Quran that existed at that time was then burnt. So all the other Qurans were burnt. So that is the beginning of the Quran, and that is the beginning of Islam. It all began with one man named Muhammad, supposedly. It all began with one Quran that was then sent to five cities. Now, that's the standard account. I've left an awful lot out, Matt, because there's just not enough time. Let me give you a second answer to your question. That is not what history is telling us. History tells us that there was no place called Mecca. We can't find any reference to any city called Mecca until 740. 740, that's the mid-8th century. It's a, it doesn't appear on any maps until 900. No one has heard of this city until the 8th century, over 100 years after Muhammad. What's more... Every one of the mosques that have been discovered from the 6th, 7th, up until the 8th century, up until 706, every mosque all over the world, as far away as Canton, as far away as India, as far away as Turkey, every mosque that has been looked at and has been uh, archaeologically uh, deciphered, all of their kiblas, that means the direction of prayer, are facing a city called Petra in Jordan. Nowhere near Mecca. That's 600 miles further north. When you look at the Quran, if you look at all of the geographical locations, 65 geographical locations, nine of them, which are named by name, none of them fit Mecca. They all fit Petra. If you look at the Arabic in the Quran, look at the Arabic that is there. The, the Quran Arabic that is there is much too sophisticated for the Arabic that was used in the middle part of Arabia. It all comes from the southern, southern Levant. And... That is where Petra is. So everything we're finding out archaeologically, everything we're finding out about historically, seems to show that Islam began and was created much further north, about 600 miles further north. More than that, look at Petra. Petra not only fits everything we see in the Quran, because the Quran talks about this place where this prophet comes from, but doesn't give him a name. Only four times will you find Muhammad's name in the Quran, and each one of those four times, really, the name Muhammad means the praised one. That could be even Jesus Christ, because... If the praise one is nothing more than a title. It's not a name. What's more, when you take a look at all of the, the locations that are in the Quran, you will notice that they not only fit Petra, they fit diametrically specific to what we know as Petra today. On top of that, we're now looking at, and we're, this is one thing we're doing now, we can't find any reference to any man named Muhammad until 691. Yet he died in 632, again, according to their traditions. We can't find any reference to any people called Muslims until 692. Yet supposedly Muhammad was a Muslim. Supposedly Islam existed at that time. 
we can't find any reference to any Quran at all. No reference to these five Qurans that were sent anywhere. There is no Quran at all in the 7th century. The oldest manuscripts, and that includes the Topkapi, the Samarkand, the Ma'il, the Petropolitan manuscript, the Husseini manuscript, and the Sana'a manuscript, the six major manuscripts, only begin to appear in the 8th century. This is after 691. This is now 705 and later. Some of them even up as far as the 9th century. And the Arabic that we see in those earliest manuscripts, none of those earliest manuscripts are complete. None of them agree with each other. And most damaging, they don't agree with the Quran we have today. Now, can you see why I've given you two different answers? And I've probably really confused you, but there's a reason why we have to say this, because historically speaking, when we look at how Islam began, when we look at how the Quran began, the story we're getting from the Muslims, ask where that story came from. Where is it we find out about Muhammad? Where is it we find out about Mecca? Where is it we find out about the Quran and how it was put together? That story only gets written down in 833 by a man named Ibn Hisham. Muhammad died in 632. So the earliest account we have for the biography of Muhammad is 200 years after his death. The earliest reference we have for any of the sayings of Muhammad, called the Hadith, are from a man named Al-Buhari, who died in 870. That's 240 years after Muhammad's death. The earliest references we get to the Quran, the Tafsir, the, the commentaries on the Quran, or in the histories of mankind, called the Tahrik, those only get written down by Al-Tabari in 923. That's 300 years after Muhammad, which means everything we know about Muhammad, everything we know about Mecca, everything we know about Islam, everything we know about the Quran, everything we know about anything that is Islamic, that is historical, only first appears two to 300 years after Muhammad. Now, ask yourself, can you imagine if that's what we were going on with the person of Jesus Christ, if we knew nothing about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until the third century? We would have nothing about who Jesus was, where he lived, what he said, what he did, until after the third century. How would we defend him? And why hasn't this been brought out to the open? And why aren't people asking these questions? Well, we are asking these questions. So when you look at the traditional account that I started with, the standard account, the classical account, they call it, and then you look at what history is telling us, you're getting two different answers to your question. Yes. Now, let's take a look at some of that information that you brought up. First of all, let's begin with how is the Quran viewed by Muslims here? Because what you're saying, the history shows, would be absolutely devastating to a very important pillar in their theology. Yeah, well, Pat, if you have been watching what's been happening in the last six weeks, you will see that that is starting to unravel on the Internet. We are finally... Finally, we are finally getting this message across, and Muslim scholars, two Muslim scholars, very well-known, noted Muslim scholars here in the West, have finally admitted that the Quran they've been talking about is not as well-preserved as they have been saying. But let's take a look and see what they say. There are four things that every Muslim has to say about the Quran. Well, when I say every, 99.9% of all Muslims, there is a 1% that are liberal that live here in the West that would not make these claims. But the, let's talk about the other 99%. Number one, they would say that the Quran is eternal. Now, that is not something they've made up. That's in the Quran itself. In chapter 85, verse 22, it does talk about the preserved tab tablets, which are eternal. They means they have never been created. Therefore, the Quran is derived from those eternal tablets. Uh, in chapter... 10, verse 15 of the Quran, and in chapter 15, verse 9 of the Quran, and in chapter 18, verse 27 of the Quran, it says very clearly that the Quran was sent down to Muhammad, a man named, well, it doesn't say Muhammad, it's just sent down, and that God would preserve it, and that God would guard it, that God would guard it from any corruption. So every Muslim has to believe that it's uncorruptible. 
thirdly, they would also know that the Quran was sent down via the angel Gabriel to a man named Muhammad between 610 and 632, so 22-year period in two different cities, Mecca and Medina. And this does not come from the Quran itself. That comes from the traditions. That comes from, well, as the, what I said late earlier, the Hadith and the Sirah that would read the biography of Muhammad. And then number four, and this is probably the most important one, this is the one that's causing the most damage, is that since the Quran was sent down to Muhammad in that 22-year period, since it was written first by Abu Bakr and then rewritten a second time by Uthman in 652, the Quran that we have in our hand today is exactly the same as that that was that's in heaven that was sent to Muhammad and written by Uthman in 652 and when they say the same that means every word every letter even Muslims will say every dot is exactly the same as the Quran that we have in our hand today that's the classical account that's what every 99.9% .9 of Muslims will say about their Quran can you see a problem with that immediately Yes, you know, uh, the perfection of the Quran is one of their main pillars. The Quran, we, we have a perfect copy. The one in heaven is the same one we've got here. And if there is some deviation here in the Quran and the early manuscripts, that poses a serious problem. Would we ever say that about our Bible? Uh, Absolutely not. And that's why I'm so glad I don't have to defend this. We would never say our Bible is eternal. Of course, it's not eternal. We know it was written by men. We know when it was written. We know who wrote them. Many of the books, we give the names to them. We know that it was inspired by God, but not eternal. And we would know that also, if it's made by men, then it is open to error. We know that there are some verses in there that possibly should not be in there. We even warn the readers that it has changed uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20. I know in my Bible there's a line warning the readers that these verses are not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts. John chapter 7, verse 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11. Also, there's a warning there. And so, therefore, we leave those verses in there because there's nothing in those verses that is not controverted or contradicts any other doctrine in the, in the Scripture. We are very clear that our, our book is written by men. Islam cannot make that claim. There cannot be any human intervention. There cannot be any human hope of intervention because then it takes away its eternality. Right away, it eradicates that notion that it's eternal. And that's why they have elevated the Quran to such a high place that now it's so easy to shut down and work. That's exactly what happened six weeks ago. I'll tell you more about that because you'd be love to hear what's going on with the Quran at the moment. Yes, and as you talked about, you know, in the Bible, we constantly are studying the manuscripts and doing what's called textual criticism so we can get more accurate to the original documents, you know, which are the inspired and without error. The copies, as you mentioned, have errors, and that's why we are constantly doing these textual studies. That hasn't been done, you know, with the Quran because it's viewed as so sacred, and to criticize it, you get the death penalty or you get some serious threats. But now, like you're saying, they're doing some serious study, textual critical studies on the Quran, and we're finding something different. Well, that's what we're doing. And so I don't expect Muslims to do this, and they are getting angry, and they do yes. give us all kinds of threats. But, you know, we don't listen to those threats, and we don't pay attention to them. I've been doing this for almost 40 years now. And I, for 25 years, I, would, I lived in London, and I would go down to Speaker's Corner, which is there in Hyde Park, get up on a ladder, and I'd be accosted and yelled at, and they yelled at for by hundreds of Muslims every Sunday afternoon. So I'm so used to it, it doesn't bother me anymore. But it's fascinating that we're applying to the Quran what had already previously been applied to the Bible. And when you look at these criticisms that we're now applying to the Quran, source criticism, what we're talking about, redacted criticism, historical, uh, you talked about literary criticism. These kind of criticisms have never been applied to the Quran or to Islam 
for the first time, we're now doing it to Islam and we're just destroying it. And it's made my job so much easier. I'm absolutely enjoying myself now because I've never had this kind of material to work with. I've never had this easy a job at communicating it. And I have never had this many reactions. We're getting hundreds of Muslims that are leaving Islam because of this material. And the reason why is they have been told their whole life a lie. They have been told their whole life that this man, Muhammad, actually did exist and created Islam and lived in this place and, and spoke these words and received this book. And this book didn't even exist. There is no manuscript. There is not one Quran from his century. And even the Qurans that do begin to show are completely different than the Quran we have today, which suggests lots of human manipulation all the way through. Yeah. So let's go over some of the evidence that you're finding in regards to the Quran. Well, let's go through this, what's happened in the last six weeks. Yeah. Preservation. This is what Muslims have always said. And anybody who's listening, I hope some Muslims are living, listening as well. They will tell you that there is not one word, there is not one letter that's different in the Quran they have in their hand than that which exists in heaven, sent down to Muhammad, and then compiled by Uthman in 652. So for 1,400 years, they have exa had the exact same Quran. What has happened is the scholars know different. And for a thousand years, the scholars have known different because the scholars, Islamic scholars know that that is tend not be true because there are different recitations of the Quran. Now, what happens is when you look at the Arabic, and I don't expect anybody who's listening to me to understand Arabic. That's fine. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. When you look at the Arabic written text, there are 16 letters in the Arabic text. However, today there are 28. How did they get the other 12? Where did they, uh, where did they get the other 12? Where did they come from all of a sudden? Well, the reason they are more letters now is because many of the letters in the, in the Arabic have just little smiley faces. And you can get five different letters from just one smiley face. So dots were needed. Uh, what we know as diacritical marks were needed to delineate which letter was which letter. And so if you put one dot above the smiley face, it becomes a nut or like an N. If you put two dots above it, it becomes a T, like a T. If you put three dots above it, it becomes a T, like a TH. If you put one dot below it, it becomes a B, like a B. And two dots below it becomes a Y, like a Y. So it could be N, T, T, B. Yeah, five different letters, depending on where you put the dots. But those dots didn't exist in the 7th century. Those dots did not exist in the 7th century. They're not on any of the earliest manuscripts. So dots had to be invented in order for people to read the text properly. And that's why the dots started to be introduced in the 8th century. And by the mid-8th century, then, you had five dots, and then you had three vowels were introduced. The dhamma, which is the U sound, the kasra, which is the E sound, and the fatta, which is the A sound, U, A, and E, those three vowels. Those were introduced in the 8th century. Now, suddenly, Pat, you have five dots and three vowels. Well, you can imagine just with one smiley face how many different combinations you can get. If you just put three of those smiley faces together, which every Arabic word is, it's always made up of three letters, and you put three letters together with dots, different differences, you can get 19 different words, depending on where you put the dots. Can you imagine then when all these Arabs there in the 8th century had all these dots and vowels to then deal with, they had to come up with all kinds of combinations because you can get combinations upon combinations, about hundreds, thousands of combinations of where dots are and vowels. Now, some of it is the context, but a lot of it can be different words meaning different things. So as a result, you get different readings, completely different readings. There were so many readings. In fact, I'm going to put up a video today, later on this evening on Fander Films, and I'm going to show you that there were 700, around 700 different readings, possibilities that existed in the 8th and 9th century. So many that they didn't know what to do with all these different ways of reading the Quran. So what happened was they had to choose 30. 
They chose seven major ones, then they had three after that, which made ten. And then from each of the ten, they two chose two narrators. So that's twenty. Twenty plus ten equals thirty. Thirty. Uh, what they call kirat. Kirat means readings, different readings. Not one of them were the same. They were all written down, and you can buy all 30 of them today in Arabic stores or in marketplaces in the Arab-speaking world. These are Arabic Qurans, 30 different Arabic Qurans. We have looked at just 23 of them, and we found 93,000 differences between them, 93,000 differences. So when Muslims suddenly hear this, that there's only one Quran, they've been told that all their whole lives, and now they found out that there are 30 different Qurans, and that the Quran we're using today was only chosen out of the 30 in 1924 by a man named Muhammad ibn al-Husseini al-Haddad from Al-Azhar University there in Cairo, only for Cairo, only for the city of Cairo, so they could standardize the Qurans for the high school tests, the standardized tests. It was done for the Department of Education for one city, but they took all the other Qurans, they took all the other 20 that it disagreed with this one Quran called the Hafs Quran, H-A-F-S, named after the man who wrote it, who created it in 796. They took the other 29, took them out into a boat and sunk them into the Nile there in Cairo, thinking that that had solved the problem without realizing that that was only for the city of Cairo. 1936, they then made that Quran standardized for all of Egypt. That was so successful that the government in Saudi Arabia, King Fahd, decided to make that one Quran the one Quran for the entire world. And that was in 1985. That is just 35 years ago. Pat, you're older than 1930. Uh, you were born, you were living in 1985. So was I, which means both you and I are older than the canonical Quran that they use today. Doesn't that make you feel old? Yeah, but that's also shocking or stunning, you know, in those who grew up Muslim or who studied Islam and taught that what they have is the direct copy that comes from the original. Pat, is this the first time you're hearing this? No, I've heard it several times, but it might be the first time that many of our listeners are hearing this because, you know, we're taught the standard doctrine in standard history of Islam. And for many Muslims to hear that there are changes in the Quran and that not just you. Thousands. Yeah, you mentioned over 90,000. Yeah. 93,000 that we have counted so far. Those are the ones we have counted. Yeah. There's many more. There'll be over 100,000 by the time we're finished, our team in London that's working on this. And that's why for Muslims to hear this, this causes an enormous amount of anger. Now, what yes. happened six weeks ago? Let me. I don't know if you want me to tell you what happened. Oh, yeah, six weeks absolutely. Ago. So we're talking about May 19th. May 19th, Dr. Shabir Ali did a small video where he had finally admitted that there was not just one Quran. There were a multiplicity of Qurans, though he didn't wow. say how many. He just, said, he just said a few. Wow. And he said at that time, but there is no difference in any of these Qurans between any doctrine, any practice, or belief. Now, where do you think he got that from? Yeah. That's our from... line. Yeah. That's what we've been saying. Uh-huh. He's just mimicking us. But no Muslim can say that because the Quran is very clear. This has nothing to do with doctrine, practice, or belief. There is no difference between and one word of the Quran, between one letter of the Quran to say some, even say even one dot cannot be changed because then it is open to human manipulation. Wow. That's the problem. That's so huge. once he made that, that was huge. But it got even worse. On June 8th, on June 8th, Muhammad Hijab, who is considered to be probably one of the largest um, YouTubers, Muslim YouTubers. He has a following of about 270,000 on YouTube. 
and he's from England, and he's a good friend. Uh, well, I don't know if he would call me a friend, but he is an antagonist Muslim that's very radical, that goes to Speaker's Corner lots of Sundays. When I was there, he would come down. He stands about six foot eight. Uh, so when I'm on the ladder and he's standing next to me, his head's next to mine, and we go at it. We've done it for, uh, for a number of years. But back in 2016, so four years ago, Hatun Tosh is the one who has collected, she collected 26 of these Qurans from all over the Arab world. This is, these are Arabic Qurans, not translations. These are all Arabic Qurans. They are the Quran of Al-Duri, the Quran of Galun, the Quran of Warsh, the Quran of Hus, the Quran of Hus, Hus. These are different, 26 different Qurans, all from 8th, 9th, and 10th century. And we held them up, 26 of them, there at Speaker's Corner. And it caused a huge furore. And there in the crowd was this Muhammad Hijab, standing tall. He could see that there was a problem, and so he quickly went outside of the crowd, and he started calling all the Muslims to leave. And you, we have it all on film. I put it up about two weeks ago there on my Fander Film site, on my YouTube site. He pulled them out, did not want any of them to see what we were showing or hear what we were saying. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.